0: Let me pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Well, if there's a God, how does he communicate with us? Tim Keller, in his very good uh, devotional book, which works through the Psalms uh, during the course of a year, giving you one or part of one a day... Uh, writes this on Psalm 19, which is the psalm we're looking at this morning. Why do mountains and oceans, the sun and the stars, move us as deeply as great art? And the answer to his question he gives is, because they are great art. (coughs) Nature, he says, speaks to all without audible words. The late John Stott, in his attractively produced sort of coffee table book on selected psalms, writes this on Psalm 19. It contains the clearest summary of the doctrine of Revelation, basically how God communicates with us, to be found in the Old Testament, namely that God has made himself known to all humankind as creator, verses 1 to 6, to Israel as lawgiver 7 to 11 and to the individual as redeemer. Sir Francis Bacon, in the days when you could uh, multitask as a public figure, was a philosopher, an advocate, an early advocate of the scientific method, who also found time variously to be Attorney General and the Lord Chancellor, but that was in the late 16th, early 17th century. He expressed what many Christian scientists um, hold to. He expresses it quite succinctly. He says, God has in fact written two books, not just one. Of course, we are familiar with the first book he wrote, namely scripture, but he has written a second book called creation. Well, let's familiarize ourselves with the first six verses of Psalm 19 through the eyes of C.S. Lewis, who thought this the greatest poem in the Psalter, and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And coming from somebody who was a professor of English literature at uh, Cambridge, and a tutor at Oxford, that is some endorsement. Let's take a look and then reflect uh, uh, on the enormity of the universe through which God has chosen (laughs) one channel of communicating with us. So let's turn to page 552, Psalm 19, and uh, learn from it. Well, this is general revelation, as the theologians call it, because it is to all people everywhere in every age. And that means that there can be no human being, whenever they lived, wherever they've lived, who can plead ignorance of God, since God has never ceased, to stop his revelation of himself through creation. The Apostle Paul, when he was in Lystra, which is in central Turkey, in about the 50s AD, and uh, what well, his comments recorded in Acts 14 said In the past, God let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. And writing to the Christian community in Rome, Romans 1.20, he says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His external power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. This witness is in nature, especially here in this psalm, in the heavens, which we're told declare the glory of God. Because they are the works of his hands, verse 1. Imagine it's midnight. Imagine that you're in some part of the country or the world, quite away from any kind of uh, urban center of population, so that there's no light pollution, and you are sitting there just gazing up into the night sky. You may have no appreciation whatsoever of the vast distances that there are from what you can see. And what you can see is only a tiny fraction of what there actually is. You may see a passing comet. You may have previously watched a spectacular sunset. And you are about to watch a spectacular sunrise. Maybe you've had the good fortune to go into the Arctic, and you've seen the northern lights, the aurora borealis. And you appreciate the beauty, the order, the power of it all. And you ask yourself, how come it's so? How come it's here? David Pawson, in um, I think his first book, He wrote in 1977, Truth to Tell, subtitled Christianity Explained, puts the four options very helpfully. He says there are four answers on offer today. He finds the first mind-boggling, but many people believe it, so it cannot be ignored. They say the answer to the question, how did the universe get here, is that it did not that it's not really there at all. The whole thing is a figment of the mind and illusion. Matter simply does not exist. The second answer, which is increasingly popular in recent years, is to say that the universe has always been there. It has changed and developed and evolved, but there never was a time when matter did not exist. The idea is at least as old as the Greeks and it has the merit of being at least a rational alternative to belief in creation. But modern research into the universe and its origins makes it an increasingly difficult position to defend. More and more scientists believe that the universe is not infinite, either in terms of space or time, that it had a beginning and it will have an end. The third answer could be summed up in one word chance. At some remote point in history, nothing becomes something, which of course is impossible. But by assuming that there are some ingredients there, that somehow or other there has been some spontaneous creation, and that it is all by chance come to be what we experience today. Charles Darwin said, I cannot believe with my mind that all this was created by chance. You may well have a long period of development, which we certainly do have, if the universe is 15 billion years old, that our planet's four and a half billion. And you know, there's a whole process that has gone on, but there it is not chance. There's a, there is an intelligent mind behind it all, and that leaves us with the fourth option, that the universe was created, and that the very fact of its existence is proof that there must be a power, an intelligence greater than the universe, which willed it into existence, and that power, that intelligence is the being that we have come to call God. And David gives this illustration. Supposing you're exploring a desert region with four friends and you stumbled across a fabulous palace. Each of your friends offered an explanation for its existence. It's only a mirage, says the first, even after you've banged his head against the solid brick walls. It's always been there, suggests the second. It's as old as the earth itself. It put itself there, offers the third, by a remarkable process of chance. It was built by a famous architect, says the fourth. I've met him myself. Which would you believe? Which is the most reasonable? Which is the most plausible? For my money, creation requires a creator. The invisible God is the first cause of creation. And the intricacies of the universe also indicate not just a creator, but also a designer behind it all. And that argument has been strengthened in recent years by discovery, by cosmologists. They've noticed a series of remarkable coincidences which all combine to make human life possible. I have really, I have absolutely no experience of making a cake in my life because I'd fail abysmally if I tried. But I'm aware that it is made up of a number of ingredients and that the variables are quite considerable, and that if somebody opens the door and kind of fan, and the oven gets a draught of cold, you know, the whole kind of thing collapses and all that sort of stuff. But we can relate to that, but just think about the variables that there are in the creation and development of the entire universe. Professor, or to give him his full title, The Reverend Professor Sir John Polkinghorne, Fellow of the Royal Society, Professor of Physics at Cambridge at one point, President of Queen's College. In other words, he's got the full package. He's a credible witness. He says this, and he puts the point very powerfully about getting all these variables right. It's worth listening to, um, and you'll grasp it. He says, in the early expansion of the universe, that's after the Big Bang, when everything is kind of moving outwards, he says, there has to be a close balance between the expansive energy, driving things apart, and the force of gravity pulling things together. If the expansion dominated, then matter would fly apart too rapidly, for condensation into galaxies and stars to take place. Nothing interesting could happen in such a thinly spread world. On the other hand, if gravity dominated the world, the world would collapse in on itself again before there was time for the process of life to get going. For us to be possible requires a balance between the effects of expansion and contraction, which at the very epoch in the universe's history has to differ from equality by not more than 1 in 10 to the power of 60. The numerate will marvel, he says, at such a degree of accuracy. Unfortunately, he says, for the non-numerate, he borrows an illustration from Paul Davies as to what that accuracy, 10 to the power of 60, means. He points out that it is the same as aiming at a target an inch wide on the other side of the observable universe, which is 20,000 million light-years away, and hitting the mark. Coincidences such as this are collectively referred to as the anthropic principle. That just means... It's all focused on us. It's all for us. Polkinghorne goes on, we live in a universe whose constitution is precisely adjusted to the narrow limits which alone would make it capable of being our home. It is astonishing, isn't it, when you consider the vastness of the universe. It is enormously vast. And yet, we are unaware of there being any other intelligent life in it other than ourselves. It looks like, it's not saying that there aren't, but it looks like, even the vastness that we do know, that it's all been made so we can exist. That the mind behind it wants us to exist. And in order for us to exist, all the rest of it has to. Now some scientists have um, uh, avoided this conclusion by suggesting that there are a huge number of universes in addition to our own, each operating according to its own laws. The vast majority do not have the right conditions for life. But the occasional freak universe, such as our own, is different, as one would expect from an infinite number of attempts. The odd one is bound to succeed sooner or later. But there is no evidence of other universes beyond our own. The theory is pure speculation. Russell Stannard, who himself was a professor of physics at the Open University, commented, this suggestion is not science. If people prefer to interpret the cosmos that way, rather than to accept a designer God, then that has to be their choice. But he adds As far as I'm concerned, there's no doubt that where the anthropic principle is concerned, believers are in pole position looking back at Psalm 19 itself, God's witness to himself is through the heavens and it has three characteristics. The first is that it is continuous, day after day, night after night. The testimony is given without intermission. It is abundant. The verb in verse two is very expressive. They the heavens pour forth speech. And it's universal. Although there is no speech or language, verse three, this non-verbal communication is by sight rather than by sound. And the message given penetrates to the ends of the world, verse 4. And the sun in the sky is a particular example of the universal witness of God by the heavens. In dramatic but not literal imagery, the psalmist likens the sunrise to the emergence of a bridegroom from his pavilion on the day of his wedding. Imagine it, those of you who are wives. Can you remember? You arrive at church, you're up at the end of the aisle, and there he is, your man. In a finely cut suit, he stands out and he turns round to admire you as you walk down the aisle. I guess in your image, there's a bit less of him then than there may well be now. but then you have to say who's been feeding him for the last X number of years. (coughs) Anyway, um, before I get into trouble, um, this is a wonderfully designed lecture, you see. It suits me perfectly, because you can see from about my knees, and you can see from my chest, and my wife would say they're the best bits, but the rest (laughs) in the middle is all nicely covered up, wonderful. Anyway, that's a digression. Or the daily course of the Sun across the sky is likened to an athlete running his course from beginning to end verse 6 nothing is hidden from the heat of the Sun just as nothing is hidden from the eyes of God so nature reveals the existence of a creator and a designer behind it all our life here is not an accident There is meaning and purpose to it. It seems so obvious, doesn't it? It seems the most reasonable. It seems the most plausible. And it has been for the entire time of humankind's existence. So why doesn't everybody recognize the fact Well, Paul in Romans 1 writes that it's got nothing really to do with intellectual capacity, but I think more to do with volitional orientation. One twenty of Romans. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made so that men are without excuse. But in two verses before, he has said that they, human beings, suppress the truth by their wickedness. They suppress the truth. They don't want to admit that there is a God because if there was, they would have to surrender their personal autonomy to him. In other words, they're quite content at the moment doing their own thing. They don't want him interfering. I suggest that reading the biographies or the autobiographies of some of the well-known, pretty militantly atheistic scientists would give a much clearer indication as to why they were atheists than reading, plowing through their scientific articles. Articles, by the way, they're no greater. You can, ma- you can find, for any kind of atheistic scientist who kind of hits the news, you can find a Christian scientist who is either their equal or is in many cases their superior. It isn't about intellect. It's about morality. While the natural world is evidence enough of a creator and a designer, and that uh, we can deduce certain things about him from what he's created. We read in verse 3, they display knowledge. Non-verbal communication has its limitations, and it can be easily misunderstood. We need more, and God provides it. And Ted's going to read us the rest of Psalm 19.
1: The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The ordinances of the Lord are sure, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and altogether are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them is a great reward. But who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins, may they not rule over me, then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer.
0: So our psalmist turns from God's general and natural revelation through creation to his special and supernatural revelation through the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, but equally applicable to the rest of Scripture if we follow the attitude of Christ to both the Old and the New Testament. Nature tells us about God's reality and power, but not about his saving grace. Only the Bible can enlighten the spiritually blind, verse 8, and refresh the soul, verse 7. Now, the soul in Hebrew is really the essential us, our self-consciousness, the the aspect of us which is eternal. And uh, the Bible tells us how we who are born as a marred image of God can, through absorbing the word of God, his message in our thinking and our behaviour, come to be transformed and have that marred image restored, or at least on the way to full restoration. For the Bible to do all this, we have to accept that it is perfectly true and trustworthy in all its parts. The law, or the divine instruction, is perfect, bearing witness to God's nature, expressed in his will, and consists of, we read, uh, particular statutes, precepts, and commands. We read that it's perfect, and it's seen in the fact that its uh, injunctions are said to be trustworthy, right, radiant, pure, sure, and altogether righteous. It's also called the fear of the Lord, verse 9, because the great end of Revelation is to inspire a humble and reverent worship of God. But the psalmist does not merely contemplate the law of the Lord. He also lists its beneficial effects, reviving the soul. Rejoicing the heart, making wise the simple, verse 7, and giving light, verse 8, to those who are humble enough to receive it. The inherent qualities and the life-giving results of God's law make it, we read, more precious than gold, sweeter than honey from the honeycomb, verse 10 a combination which stresses what is most valuable and what is most pleasing. And it's interesting in that, as we move from the first six verses to the second five, how the word for this divine being changes. Through creation, we learn about God, El in Hebrew. But through the revelation of his word, the law, we discover his character and his personality. Because in this covenant relationship which he made with the Israelites, he is revealing, by all those kind of endless kind of laws and lists of stuff, he is revealing something of both his character, his moral qualities. And something of his personality it isn't just an abstract rather distant creator God he is a God that wants a personal relationship with every individual that is why he's gone to enormous lengths to create this vast universe so that us on our little planet I'm not saying there aren't others somewhere but we don't haven't ever come across them He's done it so that he can have a relationship with us. Which is really quite astonishing when you consider how vast the universe is. So let's end with the last few verses, the last four verses, about personal revelation. In verse 11, the psalmist, for the first time, mentions himself. He's been describing how all of the earth, verse 4, may discover God's glory from nature. And how the simple verse 7 may derive wisdom from God's law but he concludes his psalm by sharing his personal spiritual aspirations as God's servant he hasn't just studied God's law but he has let it search him we are not left guessing how we are to live through scripture the Lord tells us in fact He warns us, it says, but also promises that, quote, in keeping them, there is great reward. D. H. Lawrence, the novelist, once wrote, if only we had two lives, the first in which to make our mistakes and the second by which to profit by them. Well, of course, if we followed God's law in the first place, we'd only need one life, but we all make mistakes and we all learn from them, and Christ can give us new life to benefit. Well, you see, D. H. Lawrence seems to have discovered from his own experience the dual purpose of God's law, which is to reveal sin and to promote holiness. And this leads the psalmist to pray for cleansing from his hidden faults, verse 12, which even if he doesn't know what they are, He is self-aware enough to know he must have committed them. That's true, isn't it? It is possible, for example, to do the right thing, but for the wrong motive. And to be so lacking in self-awareness, to not engage in self-examination, that we are completely blind to it. We don't know that we've done it. He also prays to be kept from willful sins. That's to say deliberate sins. Sins that we know are wrong and yet we commit them. What are yours? Do they come readily to mind? Sins which you have rationalized away. Sins you might commit in secret so that you think nobody sees. Sins you've committed so frequently and defiantly that your conscience has become dull to them and through habit have become more and more part of your life. You see, the more that you commit a sin it becomes a habit and you get so increasingly into it that it's increasingly hard to break free from it. In its worst form it becomes an addiction and then you're in real trouble. Now the psalmist doesn't want to go there He doesn't want to go down that route at all. And so he prays that he won't even start. He prays that he will be kept innocent of great transgression, he writes. And finally, the psalmist, aware that the words of our mouths are but an expression of what we think, the meditation of our hearts, he prays for the Lord's control over his inner thoughts and outward expression. I don't know. I, uh, in my teens, I used to do quite a lot of outward-bound stuff. In my 20s, I went on various expeditions. And some of you may have um, served in the armed forces or you may have done things similar, where you're, you deliberately are put in situations of adversity. And it's in situations like that that you really see what a person's character is like. How do they hack it when it's really getting quite tough? It is quite an education. And that's what's happening, the the psalmist is aware of here. He's, He's aware that deep down within him there is something that doesn't look so good. It's sometimes it takes adverse situations in which to flush it out to be clearly seen. But it is revealing. And this guy wants his heart's disposition right so that his words don't let him down and portray an adverse character. He prays that they would both be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel at your wonderful universe. Even with our very limited knowledge, we look at uh, some of the, uh, the night sky. We look at what people who uh, have access to other ways of measuring it tell us about its sheer vastness, its beauty, its awesomeness, its power. And we thank you for that revelation. We thank you even more that you have revealed your personality and your character through your spoken word, (coughs) recorded for us now in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we thank you that you've done that so that you as a person want to be in relationship with us as persons. And finally, we thank you, Heavenly Father, that your word is very searching just as the sun touches every part of this earth, so you see absolutely everything that goes on. And we pray that we might be wise like the psalmist and pray the prayers, request, and requests that he asks for, that we might please you in your sight, our Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer, Amen.